they live in the Camorra Islands uh, in this 1040 window. And that's a, it's a small country, you know, a few, few, few thousand people. But Jenny, I was trying to remember, there are how many believers of Christians on that whole island? Twelve. 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 And I'm talking about several thousand people in that area. So they're like 12 believers that they've been working with for several years. And so it's quite a challenge. And so I encourage us. Thanks to Beth Thomas for telling us about this and reminding us that today is that day that the churches around the world are praying for this 1040 window. So use some of those resources, World uh, OperationWorld.org, uh, Every Home for Christ, uh, which will have uh, state, uh, data and information. Uh, Operation World will tell you who the king is or the rulers or the people in the parliament or what the breakdown is of Christians and non-Christian religions, what are some of the prayer concerns, what are some of the issues in the country. It's a very robust site. Uh, they'll give you a lot of information uh, that could help you. So anyway, let's, let's uh, commit ourselves, if you will, uh, to be praying. I've got a couple of friends in that window, and I have a friend who's in Istanbul, and uh, I've known her for many years, and Charlotte is uh, working uh, in Istanbul, uh, a single lady, uh, which is a pretty tough, and Eric, you remember her. Yeah, she, she was led to Christ by a student at J.C. Penney's in Houston, Texas, when we were in college. Uh, she was just a kid working at J.C. Penney's, and uh, a friend of ours uh, met her and got to talking with her, led her to Christ. Uh, she became a follower of Jesus and felt called to the mission. She discovered an unfound people group in a particular part of the world that no one ever heard about and went to Oxford and spoke uh, to the people about this particular indigenous group. And uh, she's in Istanbul. When I think about her, I, I think about what Charlotte's doing in that area. And then the Camorra Islands, others, and some other friends in Lebanon and places. So let's uh, pray for them like we were there, right? Wouldn't you like to do that? All right, well, good morning. We're going to uh, look here in John chapter 13. I, I want to thank Chris for last week uh, taking uh, his turn to, to do some teaching. And uh, we're going to continue this uh, topic of uh, conversations with Jesus of this idea of conversations with Jesus. We were in chapter 13 last time, and we discussed something about this uh, uh, time when Jesus has this Last Supper, if you will. It's what it's called, or the Lord's Supper, uh, different things. And, 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 and Jesus washes uh, some of the disciples' feet. But as I'm looking at this, I, I'm realizing a couple things going on here. So I just want you to bear with me as I try to kind of get us some context here. Uh, Jesus is here, we're going to begin at verse 12, when he had washed their feet and taken their garments, he reclined at the table again. Now, I want to think about this because I've kind of uh, 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 given this uh, lesson, the idea of if you call the topic of table time. Table time. Uh, you know, uh, uh, now the table that Jesus at isn't like ours. It looks like a horseshoe like this. It's kind of a, a, a horseshoe design. It's not very high. It's about high enough where you can lean on your left shoulder, kick your feet out so nobody has to smell them, and, uh, and uh, lean on your uh, left, sorry, your left uh, elbow and reach for food. And so there, at, at the table, it's, it's a little bit different than that than what we would think, but it's a horseshoe like that and a very casual, got lots of pillows in there. They're sort of uh, uh, sitting or, or leaning around there and eating food. Um, it, it, it's an, an important uh, thing in the ancient world as they share food together and share a meal together. It really is sort of a sacrament. I had a neighbor in Louisiana from Syria that invited me for coffee, and I knew at that moment I need to go. Uh, because in the ancient world, food is a sacrament. 
Food is a, is a blessing to be shared. And you don't just say, well, yeah, I'm kind of busy. And uh, just kind of, no, it's not, the, it's not the way they look at the table. The table is a place that they invite you for fellowship. Now, I'm, I'm reminded of a table uh, that I got at one time. The first time I ever met Becky's parents. <laughs> we had left Houston at 10 o'clock at night, like all good college students do when they need to travel somewhere. And we had traveled all night from Houston, Texas to the end of the earth <clears throat> called southwestern Kansas. We had traveled all night in a pickup truck, four of us, uh, which meant pretty close and it had been pretty rough uh, getting there. And I remember uh, the first time I walked into Becky's home. Now, Becky grew up in a home that had eight siblings. There were seven natural-born children. She was one of them, and they didn't think that was enough, so they adopted a kid. And so there were eight kids. Eight of those kids had a wife. No, two of those kids had a wife. Uh, uh, so there was about ten of those. And the parents were there. Aunt Marjorie, if I remember correctly, was there. It, Arlen was a farmer of a 6,000-acre wheat farm. And it was a big, big deal in that part of the community. And it uh, was a, a fairly, um, well, I'll, I'll leave that alone. <laughs> um, and I remember uh, when we had driven all night that we walk in the north door on the house. And by the way, when I lived in Houston, I didn't know north from sideways. Uh, after going out there a few times, you, you learn. Uh, and we walked in the north door, and when we did, there were 26 set of eyes on me. They decided we've waited long enough. We're having uh, Thanksgiving dinner, and Arlen is standing there, and all those eyes looking at me, and he's got two big knives doing this. <laughs> Back then, when I got nervous, I started talking. <laughs> Back then. You know. Back then. And, and I remember... Looking at those people, looking at me, and I mean, I just started talking. Hey, hey, how you doing? You know, I'm kind of like I'm on the floor show. What's funny is after dinner or after the, the meal, they take Becky to a side room and say, hey, he's not the guy. <laughs> I'm serious. After an hour and 15 minutes, they'd already sized all this up, which maybe to their credit had some idea. What was interesting is over the next years, I discovered how important that table was. That table was the center of that family. It wasn't because they ate all the time. It, it's when they ate, they all got together. This big, long table in that middle room. Becky and I were talking about this this morning. You know, they had furniture. <laughs> they had a couch and they had uh, lazy boy chairs and, and other stuff like that. But everybody met at the table. I can remember at times when we, we would eat. We'd eat at the, I remember times when there were big discussions. There were serious matters to talk about. The family met at the at the table. I, I remember when we goofed around and played games and her brothers would make me play a game and change the rules every three minutes, you know. I was really a valued member of that family. Yeah. That, that I remember how central the table was in that family. In fact, a year or so ago, uh, Becky's siblings got together and her mother, had, her dad has died and her mother's in assisted living and they decided to go back to the farm and they decided that they would uh, kind of divvy up or let the kids take what they wanted in the family and not wait until she died. I remember uh, Becky talking about this uh, or some degree and thinking, who wants the table? That table was a centerpiece of that family. And Gina, her, her youngest sister, 
uh, made, a, I guess, a pretty impassioned plea uh, for that. Uh, be able to have that table in her house. Table. You remember your table when you were growing up? Remember the table at your house? I remember my dad used to always get so upset because at our family, we, he was working as a pastor and we were doing all kinds of things and my dad would always say, this place is like a cafeteria. We don't ever sit down to eat with each other. And it was pretty true, you know. But, but that table was the center of that family. And now when I go in that house and we go out there, you know, they've, they've painted it and done some other stuff. Like The room feels pretty empty. There's a table in there, but it's not the table. We all probably have memories of a table where we sat with loved ones or we ate together or we shared a meal. Because when, when you go to a table, there's just something about it. You know, a couple of people have talked to me a couple of times about taking these tables out of here and just put chairs. And you know what I say? No. No, we're not doing that. Because tables are where people meet and learn about each other and share life and do life together. Isn't it interesting that, that at this particular event, what's going on here is happening at a table. These guys had eaten before, you know, they'd had uh, feeding of the 5,000 and, and uh, all of this other kind of stuff. But th this time it's around a table. And so I want to look at this about table time. What, what is it that Jesus does? What is it that, that we see about him that, if you will, is important because he does it, but it's important because it's at a table. It's at a time when they gather together to share a meal and, and are, are together. So, so we look at this at table time. And so I want to look at it, first of all, under this topic or this idea. Number one, Jesus' method of teaching. Look at, look at verses 12, and, and we're going to go through this. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. I then, the Lord and your teacher, washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. I gave you an example that you all should also do as I did to you. Truly I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. It's fascinating to me. Now again, I want to catch us up here. Jesus has washed the disciples' feet, which would always be the practice or the responsibility of a servant of the house. Or a servant or a slave, the, the Greek word doulos can, can mean slave or servant. That would always be the responsibility, if you will, of a servant or a slave or someone of a really low character. Jesus, you know, says, I'm your Lord, I'm your teacher. You're right, that's true. But Jesus takes upon him this activity or this matter of washing the feet of these disciples. Now, let's say this, that was a, it was an important thing. I mean, these guys are wearing sandals. They're going through all kinds of stuff. I remember whenever I uh, went to Becky's house one of the first times when I was stomping around out in the dirt and then I realized what was in that dirt. I burned my shoes. <laughs> I'm serious. I thought, I'm never wearing these again. You know, I, I thought, I didn't know that was out here in this stuff. You know? the, it, so there's all kinds of, there's, I mean, mice. And it just If you want to talk about it, talk about it later. But, but, but. But these guys, listen, they, they had legitimately dirty feet. And this was not just some nicety. It was really to keep you from gagging over dinner, you know. 
Even though they sat here like this with their feet out. You ever smelled somebody's feet? It's pretty pungent. You know? the, the idea that Jesus says, I'm going to, I'm going to, apparently nobody in the disciple group decided they did it. No, nobody thought, well, hey, somebody needs to do this. That Jesus gives them a lesson in what it means to be a servant. It's interesting here. He didn't explain the term. He didn't do an etymological study on what doulos means. He didn't give them the historical background of that. And that's what we do in church, right? What do you do? He just did it. And I, I, I want to look at this here for a minute because I, this is kind of something I, I, as I see this in, this in this particular passage. Notice Jesus says something. He said, I gave you an example of something to do. Now, I know our tradition, and maybe, maybe your tradition, some traditions still practice this. Um, uh, some uh, Episcopalian, uh, Anglicans, Lutherans, others, uh, uh, it's my understanding the Mormon church still practices this in some practices. On Monday, Thursday, of course, when I grew up in Texas, I said, how can Thursday be Monday? But uh, anyway, I grew up. The Roman Catholic Church on Monday, Thursday, or in Holy Week, the Pope or others will sometimes do this. We have done this over the years at uh, Crossings here. Uh, we, we've done it where uh, we practiced it on Monday, Thursday. We, we encouraged people, if they wanted to participate in it, it's a little frightening. It's a little spooky, you know, to be kneeling down in front of somebody and take their shoes off and, and then see an ingrown toenail. And go... I'm a little bit germaphobic. I, you know, I'm pow, pow, putting my gloves on. You know? That's why with you guys, it's, you grew up in the church with a common cup. I never had enough faith. I'm serious. I, I remember one time going there and I said, Becky, he's just got a handkerchief. We're in line. You know, we some friends to our Presbyterian uh, uh, Christmas Easter. He's only got a handkerchief. That's all he's doing is that. And I'm thinking, I don't have enough faith for this. I just went, God bless you. <clears throat> Not really. We practiced it, and, and there are people that think we still ought to practice it. And, and what we did was we would have it, and we would say you can come and practice, if you, be a part if you want to. And, it, and, and if, you, if you don't want to, if it's a little weird, just come and observe. I remember a couple of my friends, uh, for, for years they would just come and observe. Some of y'all remember those? Remember those? We used to do that pretty often. They, 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 people would just come and watch. You didn't have to participate. We do that anymore, and I think there's some, you know, discussion as to why. I know some people think when they say, Jesus, I gave you an example that you should do it. I think part of the deal here for us is, at this table time, is that if all it is is to wash people's feet on one day a year, we've probably missed the point, haven't we? We've probably kind of missed it. Jesus, I'm not, I'm not saying that you shouldn't do it or you can't do it or, you know, don't do it. If you, if you think it's important, that, that's fine. But I think that Jesus is teaching something here for us to do that's more than that, that, that is more of the idea of being a servant and a, and a person that, that serves other people all the time. When I was a pastor, we did it, and, and we had those times, and you know it, it, it can get kind of weird or, or strange, you feel. But I said this, listen, guys, if all we do is do this tonight, and we're not committed to serving each other during the year from now on for 365 days. What good is this? Right? What, 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 you know, I've, I've often wondered, what would be the corollary of service today? 
Back then, it was a real act. You know, when we do it now, my feet are in pretty good shape, you know. Make sure, it's always funny, the night before, uh, you know, foot washing service, you always clip your nails, you know. <laughs> Dig around your toes a little bit, you know. Make sure everything's good and clean. Because I don't need you to clean my feet, you know. I don't need you to do that. Listen, back then, it was necessary. It was important. It was the act of service that Jesus is calling us to. What would that be? What, what would be an act of service? Would it be to call up a couple that's got some kids and say, look, I know uh, life gets tough and our kids are gone and we've moved and they don't know where we are anymore. So <laughs> my dad, I really, when we were nine, my folks moved, but I found them. And, uh, <laughs> you know? Yeah, Stop it. <laughs> um, call them and say, you know, if we could serve you by taking care of your kids where you could go out to eat. Some people did that last week, right? What an act of service here. Some of you people need to go out on a date. You know, you need to have some time, some fun, get reacquainted with each other. What, what, what would an act of service be like? That? What, what would it be to say, you know what? Uh, I, I realize uh, things have been difficult for you and, and finances aren't. Here's a gift card to, 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 to go to the grocery store. I don't know. I, I just think that what Jesus, he said, look, I gave you something to do. Not just once a year. Not just one day. It's okay if you want to do that on Monday, Thursday. And if you think it's important, I'm, I'm all right with that. But see, this, this table talk is that Jesus is trying to teach them a way to live. And that's what he says. If you know these things, verse 17, you're blessed if you do them. You're blessed if you do them. I, I Listen, I teach all the time. I'm constantly at the university or here. I think, and Chris and I have talked about this a lot. And Chris said this was something that helped him wherever he is. I don't know, did he leave? He's heard me enough. Hey, hey. Uh, uh, Chris and I were talking about this some time ago when he said to me, Cliff, when we first started like four years ago, discussing how to have a, a class on how to study the Bible. He said, I don't think anybody's ever helped me understand how important application is. Application. I, I teach a class on Monday morning called How to Teach the Bible. And I ask my students one simple question. You guys went to church. Yes. What was the application to what you heard in church yesterday? They have no idea. None. And they go, uh, well, yeah. by the way, I was in Garden City, Kansas last week, which is neither a garden nor a city. And uh, I, I watched Matt live. I tell you, this series with that little card in the bulletin that on the back is what? Application. I nearly jumped up out of the bed. I was still in bed at 9.15. <laughs> It's a vacation. While Becky was with her mom. <laughs> I looked at thought, there it is. You know, I, I'm stunned as I more and get older and as I work in these areas that we can go to church and we can listen and we can learn and we can parse verbs and we can talk about their meaning, but we somehow don't have any idea of what to do. It's staggering to me. Look, Jesus didn't just teach his followers in some abstract way about what a servant meant. He didn't say, you know, the word here means, and he didn't say, you know, what, what you ought to think about it. He said, I did something. You just saw it. Now do it. 
Now do it. Don't agree with me about it. Don't believe it. Do it. I put something on your, your outline there. You ought to know this. This is what's frightening about teaching and preaching. It may be on the back by now. There's some research done by Edgar Dale on the effectiveness of learning. And these are statistics that have been borne out year in and year out. It's on the back, I think. That when you see something or hear it in a lecture, the retention of adults is 5% of what they heard. Only 5%. If you're just listening to me and you're just hearing me, it's, it's more than likely that you'll only remember 5% of what I talked about. Is that, is that shocking to you? You know, I've had students come to me and say, you know what you said in class the other day? I said, I didn't say that. I mean, I was there. I remember. Right? You're a freshman. You, listen, I didn't say that. Yes, you, no, I didn't. I recorded the class. Go listen to it. Right? Because people only remember 5%. Look here. Audiovisual, that's why we use these things in here in video, 20%. Group discussion. 50%. Practice by doing. What's the retention rate? 75%. You want to remember something? Do it. You, 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 you want something to, to get hold of your life and get inside of you and where you can continue to remember it and, and recall it? Do something. That's why every time I try, and I, I don't always do a great job, every time I get through with a point or an idea, what do we do? What if this week you did this? This is Jesus. This is fascinating. Jesus taught people by doing it. Can I tell you something that might shock you? It shocked me, but the data and research is coming in pretty strong. The generation that I'm working with, the 18-year-olds and you know those 20-year-olds, the research indicates that most of these kids who need a lot of help Anybody? No, I'm, yeah, just like you and I did. You know what they want? They want an older person to mentor them. Do you know that? It's shocking to me. I thought, I, 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 I did, I thought, I said, I, you know, they look at me and they, he doesn't know anything. No, the research indicates that this generation, these younger people are saying to us, look, I know, I know they, they act like... I'm not trying to talk down to any 18. I'm scanning the honest 18-year-old. Okay. Because I'm not talking down. I'm, I'm saying they sometimes come off as if they know everything. But if you get them engaged in conversation and discussion, they'll talk to you about, I need somebody to help me. I've got some guys that came just the other day at the university and said, would you mentor us? I'm going, oh, man... Something else to do. I told this kid, I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. If you'll go get two or three other guys, I'll meet with you once a week. If we get three or four of us together, I'll meet with you. I'll sit down with you. I'll teach you what I know. We'll work together. This is what Jesus did. He said, I'm going to not just tell you what to do. I'm going to show you how to do it. And I always, when I'm working with people, when they're struggling with something, maybe a, a recurring sin or a habit or an attitude, I was asking this question. Is it because you don't want to stop doing this? Because if you don't, I, go talk to somebody else. Or it's you don't know how. A lot of times people say, I just don't know how. 
I don't know how to stop this. I don't know what to do about this. Jesus didn't teach his followers in an abstract way. He shows them what to do. Jesus said, blessed are you if you do. Not believe, not agree, not accept, do. And I'm suggesting to you that what Jesus is referring to here is not simply washing of feet, but being a servant in our lives to other people, finding legitimate, appropriate ways for us to serve others in some real, tangible ways. Isn't it amazing, though? And this is what Jesus did. He showed them. He, 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 he lived it out before them and said, now you go do that. I've told you before, the Great Commission, you know, we, we've heard it so many times we won't hear it anymore. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you to the end of the age. That's, I, I, I quoted it incorrectly. You've, you've heard this a couple times, right? For me. What I forget? Huh? How's that again? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them everything I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you to the, even to the end of the age. Huh? Observe or obey. Teach them. See, I run right. Teach them whatever I've commanded you. That sounds right. No. Teach them to obey what I've commanded you. Or in King James, teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. See, that, that, we don't even hear it. It's right through our head. Because we think that teaching is simply declaring or explaining or, or, or you know, drawing it out. Or as my buddy used to say, we're teasing out this idea. No, no, that, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, teach them to obey. I'm going to ask you a question. Are you teaching anybody how to obey? You, you, you don't you say, well, I don't know everything. You don't have to know everything. <laughs> Are you teaching anybody? How to obey? He said, here's what we could do in this particular passage, or here's what we could do with this particular teaching here. I, I want to tell you, I, I'm, I'm teaching kids year in and year out at the university that are 18, 19 years of age and that have grown up in the church that do not understand that, that the idea that Jesus has here is that we teach them how to obey what to do. Isn't it fascinating that this is what Jesus told us was our great job? Now, I, I, there's a funny connection here for me. So I'm just going to ask you, here's part of the application. Are you teaching anybody how to make... Look back at that chart, by the way. Uh, uh, if you practice by doing it yourself, what's the, what's the retention rate? 75. What if you teach others? You learn... Are the people retain, you retain 90%. I've told people before, one of the wonderful things about teaching for me is I learn so much. I learn so much. I have to get after it. I have to say, how do I explain this? How, how do I get this across? And you guys that are teachers or you've been parents and you've taught your kids to realize this is how you learn. This is how you retain this notion. Teaching others to obey. 
This isn't a program. This isn't a discipleship program. This isn't a six steps. This is just all of us saying, you know what? What I know and what Jesus has taught me, I'll teach somebody else how to obey it. When I was a pastor, I had a guy in our church that had a terrible heart attack. Well, I guess all heart attacks are terrible, but this one was particularly bad. I'm not saying there's a good one, but uh, uh, anyway, he had a... Stop it. <laughs> Here we go. He had a terrible heart attack. And uh, it happened real quick. He was in Methodist Hospital, actually. And they said, had he not been in Methodist Hospital, he used to be dead. Uh, so uh, he was out. They had to cut him open and start massage. They probably don't hear all that. But <laughs> I said, I got to go to Houston. And so I went to one of our gentlemen in our church that had been there for 45 years. And I just said to him, look, I don't have time to run somebody down. I've got some people I've been discipling, but I need you to take Wednesday night, teach something you know. And he goes, I can't do that. And I said, what do you mean you can't do that? You've been in this church for 45 years. Don't you know something? <laughs> Again, why well, I'm probably not a pastor. You know? <laughs> Sometimes I say what I think. I'm saying, dude, listen, if you've been riding a bicycle for 45 years, wouldn't you be better than when you started? You're teaching. I left. <laughs> Now, we, we think that we've got to have something profound. Listen, what do you know? What have you done in your life? What have you practiced in your own life that's been a matter of obedience to say this works? I, I find this is what I can do and Jesus wants me to do. If you do that, there's a 90% retention rate. Now, you know what's fascinating to me about this is this. The disciples were there and they saw that. They experienced it. They still had some struggles. And by the time we get to 1 Corinthians, Becky, I told Becky this is fascinating to me. I'm teaching on this supper at this table on the day we're doing worldwide communion. And it doesn't take long for the early church, having had the disciples and the apostles preach and teach to them, that the very thing that Jesus talked about servanthood, serving others, is tearing the Lord's Supper and communion to pieces. A generation of people. It's all it's taken. Now, this Lord's Supper, this, this holy, wonderful event that Jesus talked about, taught about, and modeled in front of these guys is happening in Corinth now. And Paul is saying it's tearing the church apart. I wonder, I wonder again, was it that they knew what they were to do? They'd, they'd received the teaching from Paul, but they hadn't modeled it. Let me just look over there for a second, 1 Corinthians 11. I know this is crazy. I told Becky I wouldn't do it, but I'm going to. <clears throat> it just, it, it, it illustrates for me that the, the issue that if we don't teach people how to do this, to do what they know, then it just becomes a matter of belief and ideas. You know, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 11, but in giving this instruction, verse 17, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the per first place, when you come together as a church, I hear the divisions among you and I believe it. For there must be divisions among you so that there may be approved. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. He's saying, you're coming to do it, but it's not, that's not what's happening here. Notice, 
For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. One is hungry, another's drunk. What, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? And this I will not praise you. In a generation, which might you know, be 20, 30 years, the early church is now not modeling what Jesus... Let me, give you the, let me give you the quick story on this. You've heard it before, I think, but let me just remind you. What's happening here is that this meal, this Lord's Supper, is a real meal. It's not those tasty little pieces of bread we get that we're going to get today. They're tasty, but that's about it. Most of this communion bread is, blech, you know, other places. We have it at the college. It's terrible. This is not what they're doing. They're having a real meal. It's everything. And they're coming together to eat this. And what's happening is somebody's eating it up and not leaving anything for other people. That, that, that's not the servanthood. I don't care if you wash people's feet or not. If you start taking up all the food and nothing left, that's not what Jesus is talking about, is it? Now watch this. He said, I received of the Lord that which I heard on the night of his betrayal. This is my body which is done in remembrance of you. In the same way he took the cup. Now this is where it gets a little misunderstood, I think. Verse 26, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. That's all. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But a man must examine himself. Now, man, I, I read that years ago and out of the context. And I tell you, the Lord's Supper used to be the spookiest thing in the world in my church. Anybody else? Turn the music, turn the lights down, get the organ music going weird, you know, right? These weird, off, you know, minor keys. It just felt weird. I don't know. Maybe your church didn't do that. Mine did. <clears throat> it got real introspective. So it says here, if anyone eats a cup, he must examine himself. For he who eats and drinks his judgment. Uh, back up. For it, whoever eats the drink or bread, uh, eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty. So a man must examine himself. Now I want to tell you something about that word, unworthy. That the whole passage hinges on that. That word is an adverb, axios. That doesn't mean anything to you, but but if you remember English, some of y'all, you know, remember English. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't learn English until I took Greek. I really didn't. That word unworthily is an adverb. And if you recall in your grammatical book, adverbs do not modify nouns. They modify verbs. It is how something is done. The boy ran quickly. How did he run? Quickly. So when you're eating the Lord's Supper unworthily, it's what? It's how you're doing it. How are they taking the Lord's Supper unworthily? Huh? Eating it all up. They're eating it all up. They're, they're taking the Lord, that Lord's Supper and eating it all up and, 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 and not leaving anything for anybody else. So he says, look, if you eat the, Lord's, uh, the body and the blood in an unworthy manner, you're going you're gonna to drink judgment on you. Look at there, it says... You, you, you examine yourself because you you're going to put judgment in verse 29. 
judgment. For this reason, some of you are weak and sick and a number have died. That's pretty serious. So when I heard that and read that, nobody ever told me it was an adverb. They made me think if I had a bad thought or said a bad word or didn't pay my tithe, you better not take communion, right? Anybody hear that? That's what I heard all my life. All my life. I remember teaching this in a doctoral seminar, and I'm not trying to be smart aleck here, but I remember teaching this in a doctoral seminar, and these guys are looking at me when I'm talking about this adverb, and I'm going, you've never looked at this? A couple of these guys were huge pastors in Kansas City. You've never, you've never been curious that, I mean, you know, if it says if you do it unworthily, you're doing damnation to yourself, I want to know what that word means. I'm just kind of weird like that. It's an adverb. It means that these people are taking it in a way, in a way that is unworthy. In a way. Good translations are trying to get at that when it says, take it unworthily. Lee, that's the L-Y. That's the adverb operate. So if you're taking it unworthily, how are you taking it? You're taking it in the fact that you're eating it all up with total disregard for other people. Well, sidebar here, you can't do this. Just relax, will you? You can't do this. Anybody lately seen anybody in the communion cup going, oh, oh they're all mine. <laughs> I saw Stanton try that once. Stanton try it. It'd be different if it was donuts. <laughs> Nobody's eating all that old. I mean, it's good. I, I love Cindy Webb. She does a great job. It's the best communion bread I've ever eaten. It is, isn't it? Give it up. Yeah, that's right. But I'm not going to eat it all. You know, I'm waiting to go to Earl's. <laughs> Did you know you can't do this? Look here. Keep reading. Watch this. Verse 33 ought to be the clincher here. So then... What's, what does that mean? That's, okay, here's the, here's the clincher. Here's the, we're bringing it home. You know, here we go. Yeah, therefore. So then, we're bringing it home. My brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. Why? So that you will not come together for judgment. Remember what he said? If you eat it unworthily, you drink what? Judgment to yourself. How do you get out of judgment? Eat at home. When you come there, wait. I've never, again, this is going to sound arrogant. I'm 60 years old. I've never heard anybody teach on this in my life. Ever. You can't make this about who you are. It would have to be an adjective. You cannot make this about who you are. You can make this in how you do it. And I'm here to tell you, you can't. It's not how we take communion. So guess what the Lord's Supper becomes? In my judgment, the Lord's Supper becomes about me. If I don't understand this, it becomes about me, doesn't it? Did I think a bad thought? Did I have a bad word? Did I forget to bring my tithe? Do I have two tithe? I told Beck, I have two tithe checks that I forgot to put in. There's a statute of limitation on those things now. I'm talking to a lawyer about this. You know, you, you, you know what it doesn't become? We don't proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what Paul says. When you take this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
We've turned the whole thing around. It's about us. It's about me. How good have I been? How much have I done? And so it becomes, instead of this infusing meal that brings us grace and hope and confidence, we're thinking about us. Instead of proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. John Wesley commented on this in the 1700s and said, you can't do this. So I'm going to challenge you on another application here. This is worldwide. Have somebody already taken communion? You have to go back and do it again. Okay. Okay. Won't hurt you. I want you to get your attention off of yourself today and proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. I want you to get your eyes off of yourself and on to Him. I want you to quit thinking about how rotten and sorry you are and think about, I'm taking this in a worthy way because I'm not eating it all up. I'm doing it with other people and I dare you to look around. Scare some people. You know why? This isn't just communion this way. It's communion this way. We've privatized it. We've turned it into this little bitty thing about me instead of him. Instead of I'm saying I am proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. I'm going to hold those pieces up and say I proclaim the Lord Jesus' death until he comes. And I'm taking it worthily because I'm honoring him and I'm not looking at me and I didn't eat it all Paul hammers it home. So then when you come, wait for each other. That's what I'm saying is servanthood. They lost the whole thing by the time it got to Corinth. So I just, I want to tell you on this day, I knew I wouldn't get far enough today. I knew it wouldn't happen. This is too far in me. I'm just saying, I, and I'm not trying to be arrogant here, but I'm telling you, I see people that communion is the scariest, most frightening service we ever go to. You, you ever notice that? How freaked out people are, how weirded out we are. How people just kind of go into... I watch them go... Ooh. And I'm not saying if you do that, that's okay if you want to. Just don't sit by me. okay? Because I'm going to be up. I'm going to be celebrating, rejoicing. Today. The way that we're serving to one another, we wait on each other. We serve... So I'm gonna, here's, the, here's the way around the barn application. Here it is. What if when you're at your table or any table this week, you put the emphasis on doing, not just knowing? What can you do this week? It's a matter of your knowledge of what Jesus taught and modeled. Today when you're at a table. Today when you're at a table. Is there something that I could do? Is there something I could apply? Or, or, or at your home at the table? Let the table be the reminder. Let the table remind you that Jesus didn't say, now you're blessed if you know this. He said, you're blessed if you know it and what? Do it. Go and do. See you next week.